0: Our Father, thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, Uh, and we pray that you will speak to us now uh, uh, in this this passage, uh, change our hearts and minds that we might um, uh, love Jesus more, uh, and that we might follow his example and live lives worthy of the Gospel. Help me as I preach, Uh, strengthen me by your Spirit, I pray, Uh, enable me to preach rightly and, and in your Spirit's power. And so I ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw how single-minded the Apostle Paul was about the person and work of Christ. Compared with the glory of God through the advancement of the gospel, nothing else seemed to matter to him. Being in prison was okay because it served to advance the gospel. As he thought about whether to live or die, the primary reason he would live was for the sake of the Philippians and the glory of Christ among them. Because what he really wanted to see was God glorified as Christ was proclaimed. And many of us thought, what a great example he was. And I bet some of us also thought, I could never be like that. That was for the apostle. I'm just an ordinary Christian. It's different for me. Well, it's true that we are not apostles like Paul. Uh, And yet there are still ways in which we are called to imitate him in chapter 4 verse 9 paul will say to the philippian christians ordinary people like us what you have learned and received and heard and seen me practice these things and the god of peace will be with you or in chapter 3 verse 17 brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us paul wants us to follow him in having those kind of attitudes But how does it work out practically for us? Not many of us are meant to be travelling around, planting churches and preaching the gospel in places where it's never been preached before. In fact, not even the Philippians were doing that. I suspect most of them lived a pretty ordinary life. How could they put this radical gospel priority into practice? And how could we? Well in our passage today, Paul begins to answer that question. And so he turns from his dilemma of whether he's going to live or die, to tell the Philippians how they should live no matter what happens to him. He starts in verse 27 with the words, only. It's like he's lifting his finger and saying, just one thing. Right, be single-minded about this. Just one thing. Whether I'm alive or dead, you just remember, verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's it. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, to live a life worthy of the gospel means being consistent with who you are in Christ. He's saying you've received God's amazing grace through Jesus. Now in response live in response to that you've been saved through the gospel let it shape your life the gospel message that christ died for our sins in our place that he rose again as lord of all that's going to be the central thing in your christian life and flowing out from that all the implications for every area of life how we treat god how we treat each other how we look at ourselves christian living christian morality christian spirituality Christian growth, it's not just about rules and regulations or methods or techniques. No, 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 It's about the gospel and the implications of the gospel flowing out in all our life. And so the one thing that Paul wants the Philippians, and the one thing that God wants us to do, is to live lives worthy of the gospel. Everything else about the Christian life comes in under that. Now, we'll see in this letter a number of ways we should be living lives worthy of the gospel. But there are two main things that Paul spells out in these next few verses that we're looking at today. And we're going to see them on the screen. Here, there they are. First of all, gospel-worthy living involves having courage under pressure. And secondly, gospel-worthy living involves unity through humility in the local church. Courage under pressure and unity through humility. And you see both of those things, actually, in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, (coughs) so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see that standing firm, that striving, right? Right? He wants them to contend in the face of persecution. It's courage under pressure. And then look again how he, how he wants them to do it. You see, it's in one spirit, with one mind, side by side. All right, there's that unity side of things standing firm, courage under pressure, unity. Now, he's going to take up the theme of unity in the next chapter we'll look at it in a few minutes. But first, he elaborates on that first one. That standing firm, courage under pressure. Uh, he's told them. Uh, in, he tells them in verse twenty-eight. He says, "You are not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. Stand firm. Don't be scared." Why don't be scared? Second half of verse twenty-eight. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. See, people without Christ, my friends, are heading for judgment. Uh, And if these people are actively persecuting those who bear Christ's message, it just confirms that they are one of those people heading in that direction. Uh, It's like a a dog with rabies that goes around terrorizing people. The fact that it's behaving that way is a sign that it's going to die. So if you go around persecuting God's people because they're God's people, That shows that you're on a path that's going to end up leading you to hell. So you've got to quickly turn around stop going that way. And if you are being persecuted for your faith, then pray for your persecutors. The terrible trouble they're giving you is tiny compared to the judgment that's coming their way. So have compassion on them and pray for them that God will be merciful to them and turn their hearts. On the other hand, The gospel tells us that those who trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord will be saved on that last day. And the fact that the the Philippians are willing to endure persecution for the sake of the gospel is a sign that they really do have that faith. They really do trust in Jesus. And therefore Paul says to them in verse 28 that it is a sign of their salvation. And then he says, and that from God. Because God is the one who gave them the faith. That should give them courage, isn't it? Uh, Paul says to the Philippians again in verse 29, it, And he's been granted to them to believe in Christ. Right? God is the one who gave them that faith. It's the same for us too, isn't it? Our, I mean, our salvation is from God, right? It's not that they were so smart that we worked it all out. And then, ah, oh, okay, 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 we believe in Christ. It's not that they were so lucky that we happened to be born in a country where we can hear the gospel not just so happened that someone told you about Jesus where you were born who spoke to you how you responded all that and your faith that all that is a gift from God it's been granted to you to believe in Christ that gives us courage but Paul says more than that it's not just by God's grace the Philippians believe but that they suffer look at verse 29 again it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Now I reckon that many of us, most of us can be saved, we're very thankful to God for our salvation, that he's given us the gift of faith. How many of us can say that we're thankful to God that he has enabled us to be persecuted for him? That kind of thankfulness gives us courage too, doesn't it? it's echoing the attitude of Jesus uh, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5 blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you and people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you brothers and sisters we're not to seek persecution not to seek difficulty But if we have to suffer for Jesus, then we must embrace it. Paul went to jail for Jesus in Philippi. Now he's in jail for Jesus at Rome. The Philippians saw that. And they're also experiencing opposition and difficulties. He says in verse 30, they are engaged in the same conflict that they saw Paul having, and hear that he's still having. But it's not just Paul. And the Philippian friends who were attacked for Jesus are part of a whole community of suffering led by the Lord Jesus, who himself was persecuted to death. Includes millions of believers whose examples we can also be encouraged by. So stand firm for the gospel in the face of persecution, or even if it's just ostracism or criticism or people looking at you in one kind of way. Stand firm when you're pressured to bribe the policeman or to hold the joystick on the face of with the threat of difficulties if you don't. Be willing to be ostracized or criticized at work for being too moral. Be prepared to follow Jesus when that's seen as a betrayal of your family or community. Be prepared to lovingly hold to the ethics of Scripture, even if that makes people slanderously call you hate filled or bigoted for doing so. Be ready to obey the Bible, even when other Christians might chastise you oh, for, for, for doing that. Because God has given us the grace not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for Him. And He's called us to live lives worthy of the gospel. And the first thing about living lives worthy of the gospel is that we are willing to suffer for Jesus, courage under pressure. The second aspect of gospel-worthy living that we're looking at today is that involves unity that comes from humility in the local church. Now the church in Philippi was actually a good church, really good church, but all churches have problems. right? And the Philippian problem was disunity. Uh, Now, there were some people in Paul's day, they were preaching a false gospel. He was going to warn the Philippians about them later. He's not saying be united with them. That's a different issue. But among the Philippians, there were people who genuinely believed and preached and taught the true gospel of Christ. And yet, even among them, there was disunity. If you look ahead to chapter 4, Verses two to four. You see, these these people are not false teachers. They are good gospel-minded people who work together with Paul. But now there's disagreement between them. So how's Paul going to get them to stand firm in one spirit and strive side by side in one mind for the sake of the gospel? He's not going to. not going to give them superficial advice. Oh, please stop fighting, lah. Right? Uh, no, no, no. Remember, he wants them to live a life worthy of the gospel. So he's going to. Address his plea to them based on the gospel. He begins the argument in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, if there's any encouragement for being in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, right? And all those, all those, all those ifs there that all that, that, oh, come out of the gospel. But being in Christ comes from the gospel, isn't it? Receiving His love, participating in the Spirit, being an object of God's compassion and mercy. That's what the affection and sympathy mean. It all comes from believing in the gospel and sharing the benefits of that. And since they do have this encouragement and comfort and love and fellowship from all these things, Paul wants them to express that in a new attitude. He says in verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He wants them to be united. Not just that they are united, but to express that unity together. And what had been stopping them from doing that was actually selfishness. And so Paul urges them in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The word selfish ambition there means self-seeking. The picture then is of a day laborer who simply does his job in order to get paid. I do this in order to get that loan. Fine. But ministry shouldn't be for what we can get out of it. Whether it's financial gain or recognition of others, or whatever else it is. Um, If you and I serve in church for ourselves, then if you're doing it for you and I'm doing it for me, then there's going to end up being competition and comparison that's going to lead to disunity, isn't it? Uh, on the, the other thing we have to avoid is, is conceit. Uh, the word conceit comes from the two Greek words, empty and glory. And he said, don't do anything for the empty glory of this world. When I was in school, Mokhtar Dahari was the, the best striker in Malaysia. Right? He played for Slangor, uh, Malaysia Cup, he represented Malaysia in international competitions. He was every schoolboy's hero. Now tell me, those who are over 50... 50 and over, how many of you remember Mokta Dahari? Okay. For those who are 50 and younger, how many of you remember Mokta Dahari? Okay. How many of you, whatever age, still think of him as your hero? Friends, it wasn't just Mokta Dahari. All human glory is empty no matter how high you go in your organization how many people are you, how many pets you get on the back you know in a hundred years time no one's going to remember you no one's going to remember me but belonging to christ brings glory for eternity that's why we prayed in our collect today isn't it that god will help us to so pass through things temporal that we lose not the things eternal don't spend your life chasing empty glory and especially not in church. Right? Sometimes Christians can fight among themselves like they were doing in Philippi for selfish reasons. Remember how Paul responded when the uh, people in Rome were preaching Christ out of envy, trying to compete with him? He says, it doesn't matter lot, as long as Christ is preached. Right? He set the example. And he says to them, you also do like that. If we do things from selfish reasons. We end up disunited. Our friends, as I think about our church, I actually rejoice to see our growth in godliness in this kind of regard. I'm really thankful for the unity that we share, and for the humility and the unselfishness I see among our people. I thank God for that. But let us be careful never to get involved in petty politicking among ourselves, backbiting, running each other down so that we look good or, or we're safe from, from losing face. I know I need to keep examining my own heart in that matter and I encourage you to keep examining yours Instead of selfishness and conceit, the Apostle Paul says in verse 3 He calls us to humility That's, what's good, that's the antidote that's going to resolve this, these issues here And humility is expressed in the way we think Which leads to the way we act And the way we think in verse 3 do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. I know that it doesn't mean we're not being truthful about our giftings. Right? Uh, uh, it doesn't mean uh, Christina should consider me a better organist than her, when, when I'm obviously not. Um, I the Bible urges us to, to think realistically. Uh, Romans 12 says, think of yourself with sober judgment. What does Paul mean here when he says, consider others more significant than yourself? Well, the idea here is being higher in status, being superior, so that things are done for your benefit, because you're higher. Paul says we should all consider each other higher than ourselves, which means we should be thinking things that should be done for each other's benefit. It doesn't mean that there are no leaders among us, right? but it does mean that leaders can't justify being arrogant and selfish in our leadership because we think we are more valuable than the people that we lead. And so, you know, things must be done for our benefit. Rather, we need to consider ourselves servants of those whom we lead, and not in the sense of obeying everything they say, but by seeking their benefit rather than our own. Paul explains this in verse 4. He says, let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Because, you know, actually we are naturally, you and I, naturally we are really good at working out what is good for us. Right? Of course we are. We think about the issue, whatever it is, how is it going to affect me? It's not wrong, but it's not enough. We need to look out for each other. Now, for example... Uh, If I'm choosing music in church, I can't just choose music that fits my taste. got to try and work out what's helpful for you. Not only in terms of your enjoyment, but more importantly, if it's going to build you up in the faith. And that's just one example. It applies across the board to all the different things that we do together in our community. We've got to consider the good of each other. And remember that each other's highest good is that we come to know and trust in Jesus now and that we continue to grow in him throughout our lives, and we end our race trusting in him all the way to the end. That's what we've got to do. Consider the interests of others. And the model of this, of course, is found in the gospel. Because gospel-worthy living is based on following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul has told us three times so far to have one mind. I have the same mind. And now he explains that that mind ought to be the mind of Christ. Now he says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or better translated, which was also in Christ Jesus. Right? Have the mind, the same kind of mind that was in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean you, you stop thinking for yourself. Here, kosong, you know, Jesus kind of takes... No, no, no. It means our attitude, our way of thinking, follows... That of jesus remember how we ought to consider each other more important than ourselves well that's what jesus is isn't it objectively of course he was far far more important than us uh, in fact verse six tells us he's in the form of god his status is no less than than fully divine sharing the father's glory from the beginning and yet he did not in verse six again equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't go, I'm obviously more important than all those humans down there. I must act for my own benefit. No, no, no. Instead, he acted for our good. And he was willing to set aside his glory to do that. And so in verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and was born, verse 7, in the likeness of man. Uh, the one who created and ruled the whole cosmos became a little baby made himself someone of no status but he went even further in verse 8 and being found in human form he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even death on a cross that was so humbling Now the humiliation of the cross is not just, you know, he put up on the cross naked with terrible suffering and pain before dying. Much worse than that. Because dying on the cross is like hanging on a tree, which the Old Testament says is a sign of God's curse. And even though he never did anything wrong, even though he didn't deserve God's curse, Jesus was publicly cursed. For our sin, so that God can forgive us without saying that our sins are okay. Jesus was willing to suffer that humiliation for us, because He was looking not just for His interests, but for ours. Therefore, verse nine, God has highly exalted him and restored on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father back in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 45 God said to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance and here in this passage it is said of Jesus because the one who is by nature God humbled himself, and has now given his rightful place as Lord of all. He considered our salvation more important than himself, and he looked out not just for our interests, not just for his interests, but for ours. And friends, if Jesus can be humble for us, then surely we can do that for each other. If Jesus was willing to give up his rights for us, surely we can do that for each other. If Jesus is willing to give up his glory for us, then surely we can do that for each other. If Jesus could serve us by dying for us under the wrath of God, then surely we can serve him by teaching Sunday school because the kids need to hear about Jesus. Or reading the Bible because people need to hear God's word. Or going to music practice so God's people can speak the truth to each other in song. Or visiting the housebound old person to help her run her race to the end. Or sacrificing financially for the ministry apprentices fund so new generation of gospel leaders can be trained. Or spending spiritually significant time with our children so that we can disciple them. Or formatting that order of service so that people can, can follow the, 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 the worship service. Or reading the Bible with a friend so that they have someone to show them how to read and point them to Jesus. Or welcoming newcomer to church so that they, they know the, 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 the love and the care of God's people. Or supporting a sister who's going through a difficult time By being there for her on the phone Or on WhatsApp Or evangelizing the difficult person Who needs to hear the gospel If Jesus is willing to Make the sacrifice for us Then surely we can sacrifice for others And yet, you know, it wasn't Primarily for us that Jesus did that. And it's not primarily for others that we will do it either. There was something even more important than our salvation that brought Jesus to earth and took him to the cross. Verse 8 tells us that he was being obedient to the Father. And in verse 11, where he's exalted as Lord. It is to the glory of God the Father. Because friends, in the end, everything, the whole universe, is for the glory of God. The whole meaning of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we were made for. That is what we are saved for. And ultimately, that is what it means to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. If we seek his glory above everything else then as he exalted Jesus so on the last day will he exalt us and he will be glorified in that exaltation but brothers and sisters we are not to exalt ourselves he who humbles himself Jesus said will be exalted he who exalts himself will be humbled So let us humble ourselves and seek the glory of God and the good of others. Let us stand firm, courageous under pressure, and let us do so together in unity with one mind, the mind of Christ. And as we do, we will indeed be conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, by his power and love controlling all I do and say. Heavenly Father, help us, we pray, that we might live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of your Son.